So I wanted to um, to begin the talk by uh, asking if anyone noticed anything interesting um, in that last meditation um, with the Vedana or any any other point today, if you were engaging with that practice, even very briefly. Is there anything interesting you noticed? Yes, Andrew. Mm-hmm. And so it, it evaded me more, <laughs> more so than it has done for us today. Okay, so the looking for the pleasant um, seemed to go with finding it difficult to find. Mm. Okay, yeah, great. Yeah, Jason. Being with it without reacting to it, mm-hmm. it changed a lot quicker Can you say a little bit more in, about how it changed? The sensations were constantly changing. Okay. Rather than when I cling around unpleasant, yeah. it feels solid for so long. Mm-hmm. And then when you kind of ease back into it, it is constantly flexing and mm-hmm. pulsing and tingling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the sensations themselves seem to be um, more changing. Yeah, and then the Vedana changed with them. Uh-huh. Yeah, great. Yeah. Anything else? Did everyone hear that? Yeah, I think you did. Otherwise, I'll repeat. Yeah. Anything else, either from this last meditation or earlier in the day? The um, the pleasant thing was small. It's just a nice sensation on my face. Yeah. Nice. And the negative negative sensation was big and grew. <laughs> So the un, the the there would seem to be um, a kind of subtle sensation that was pleasant yeah. and quite a strong sensation that was unpleasant, yeah. and the unpleasant seemed to grow with the attention. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anything else? Last chance. Okay. So. I'd like to um, to explore Vedana a little bit more this evening and kind of also to open out um, the field around it, yeah, and kind of what um, what are the possibilities through this way of looking, through looking at experience through this lens of um, noticing that particular um, <coughs> aspect, yeah, of um, that very immediate pleasant, unpleasant, I'm neither one or the other of our experience. And one major um, thing that, that I'm sure Nathan mentioned this morning, um, that this particular way of looking that we can kind of see through Vedana or that is allowed through Vedana is uh, a decrease in escalation of experience, so things can sometimes, not always, as we just heard, yeah, so um, can sometimes uh, be simplified, the process can be simplified um, and build up uh, a little less, and I think what Jason shared is very much in that realm, 
Yeah. So when staying tuned in to that frequency of Vedana, um, then the build-up of this is painful and unpleasant um, sometimes doesn't happen in the same way. Does this make sense to people? Please say no if it doesn't. Yes, Lapa. No, no, no. I just want to say in my experience that it was neutral mm-hmm. and it starts changing very quick. Uh-huh. As, as soon as I, uh, I identified it as neutral, yeah. it starts changing towards pleasant or unpleasant. Okay. It didn't, it didn't stay neutral. Yeah, yeah. So that's another great insight. And, and, and we'll get to that. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So this, this process of escalation and build-up, yeah, is, is something that happens all the time in our experience. And part of what we're interested in in practice is to start to see that, yeah, to start to kind of in our own experience see this building up of experience. And as we see that, and we can, I, we can kind of become familiar and sensitive to the different building blocks, yeah, then that loses, it can lose some of its um, power over us. Yeah, lose some of the power of us. And I, I wanted to give a little example, which is actually, I didn't ask you, Nath, it's your example, not mine, but it can be about anybody, anonymous person, um, doing a retreat at a meditation center called Gaia House, which some of you are familiar with. And, um, you know, big hall, 50 people, 55 people, and a long retreat, this was. And... Um, Someone was sitting quite close to, to Nathan on a, on a chair. And some of the chairs at Guy House are squeaky. So every time, you know, so sometimes, because this was a long retreat, you know, people coming and going in the hall. So Nathan would be sitting there in his um, spot, you know, meditating. And then um, someone quite close to him had a very squeaky chair. So this person would walk in and sit down. The chair would go... Mm-hmm. And as we can imagine, being imagine ourselves in that situation, what's the Vedana? Any guesses? <laughs> Come on. Someone say it. You're meditating. You really want to be still. And there's... Unpleasant. Unpleasant. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. So, Vedana's unpleasant. And as happens, you know, it, it builds up, you know, it builds up. Oh, you know, why, why does a meditation center have squeaky chairs? Why does this, now I'm elaborating, this is not Nathan's experience anymore, this is me. Um, you know, why does this person not, you know, why are they not aware how squeaky their chair is and, you know, sit down more carefully or whatever, you know, kind of, this is really disturbing my meditation, yeah, really disturbing my meditation. Okay, so Vedana is unpleasant and there's this build-up, this escalation of the story. Can you notice what happens in that build-up? So there was a... That lasted for a second, two seconds, five seconds. How long does the escalation last for in our own experience? Yeah, it depends. But usually much longer than that initial, Right? And this is, this is really interesting. Yeah, this is really interesting for us when we see this. Yeah. So the, the suffering 
of that unpleasant goes way beyond the initial unpleasant in this case. So then Nathan decided to look at that same event in a different way. It was okay. So there's still the unpleasant Vedana of that initial, but I'm going to treat it as an invitation, as a reminder to be mindful, to be present, instead of as a disturbance. Okay, so I'm going to look at it in a different way. Yeah, and then what happens? Yeah, then what happens? Interestingly enough, the Vedana, not only does the build-up not happen, right, because we're not causing that story anymore, it's like, ah, unpleasant, but good for me, yeah. So not only does the build-up not happen, but after some time, because of the reframing, the Vedana changes, yeah. So the same sound goes from unpleasant Vedana to pleasant Oh, a reminder again, an opportunity to practice again. Yeah. So this is, you know, this is the power of the mind and the power of the practice that we're doing. Yeah. We can start to understand these processes and we can find ways of tending to them differently. So when we become sensitive to Vedana in different ways, then we can start to learn to, to work with it. Yeah? So the escalation doesn't build up in the same way or as much. Um, and we become less hooked. Yeah? We're less trapped in this momentum of the building up of um, events in a certain direction, in a certain way. Through the consciousness, through the, the interest. And this is a profound insight, yeah? like, and a lot of the things that people said here, they are profound insight into the dependently originating nature of things, dependently arising nature of things, and of fabrication. Um, you know, how we look at things affects what happens, yeah? not always in the same way. Yeah? So sometimes we look for the pleasant, and that's you know, really freeing and liberating and releasing. And at other times we look for the pleasant and the pleasant seems to run away from us, yeah? But the way of looking, yeah, has an impact on experience. And sometimes we look at the unpleasant and it, it completely transforms, it becomes less solid, yeah? Yeah. And the Vedana changes along with that change. Yeah, so this is... This is all to do with this dependently arising nature of experience, fabricated nature of experience. So the Vedana, or the nature of experience, is not inherent in the object. Yeah. It's not in the squeaky chair. It's not in the painful knee. It's not in the um, difficult mind state. Yeah. It's in how we relate and how we relate, dependent on the way of looking. And when we bring interest and attention, then, then things shift, yeah, like Lopo was saying. And uh, I actually have it written down here. Somebody else said something similar to me on a retreat once. When we pay attention with the neutral, it can be really amazing. When we pay attention to the neutral, the neutral actually disappears. Yeah? Nothing stays neutral with interest. 
and with attention. That's, that's pretty, you know, mind-boggling. If we could bottle it up and sell it, <laughs> you know, nothing stays neutral, nothing stays boring. Nothing stays not worthy of our attention when we pay attention. People pay a lot of money for that. <laughs> you know, but we don't need to. Yeah, we can just cultivate that capacity that we have to pay attention and to look for that. So this very simple and, and kind of, you know, sometimes difficult to, um, to get a, a grasp on. And if you're sitting here and you're feeling, oh, you know, I've been struggling with this Vedana all day or, you know, I, I just don't get it, that's fine. You know, you're not alone in that. <laughs> For some of us, you know, it's not easy to, to kind of get into. And, and that's fine. Yeah, not every practice is for everyone all the time. But this practice, as well as the other practices that we've been doing and that we'll be exploring, um, it offers us avenues of insight, yeah? avenues of seeing deeply into experience um, in ways that can free us, yeah? in ways that can uh, reduce um, unhappiness and increase well-being. And particularly um, this evening, I just want to touch on um, the insight that this allows or this uh, makes available into uh, which is usually called what is usually called the three characteristics or marks of existence. Um, Nathan and I like to call it the three wisdom views. Yeah. So they're rather views rather than descriptions of reality. And the first one is, um, and again, people touched on it uh, when they were sharing their experience. The first one is um, a Nietzsche. Uh, impermanence or inconstancy. Yeah. So when we look at the Vedana, we see uh, how impermanent, fluid, and inconstant um, the nature of our experience is, how changeable it is. Yeah, We can see that. Um, we see that the Vedana changes, as people were saying right, right here. Yeah. It feels one thing, it's a, you know, it's a neutral Vedana or an unpleasant Vedana. I pay attention to it, the Vedana changes. Yeah? It's impermanent. So that's one thing that we can see. Uh, we also notice, as people have said, how changeable the experience itself is. Yeah? So we, we might notice, someone said this to me earlier today, um, just how much stimulus there is. Yeah, when we open to Vedana, we suddenly notice, oh, it's constantly changing because now there's wind, now there's sun, now there's a beautiful view, now I'm cold, now I'm warm, now there's a paraglider going through the sky, you know, now I see a beautiful tree, now I touch something I don't like, you know, what it constantly changing. Yeah. So we kind of and if if we're very tuned into the Vedana, it can feel like a flickering, you know, just Flickering, 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 as it changes. So just through this simple thing of looking at the Vedana, we can actually get a direct experience of, of this impermanence on a, on a more subtle level than um, we usually experience it at. Yeah. And this is, this is a, big, um, a big insight, experiential insight for us. And the more we attune to this impermanent, inconstant arising and passing of stimulus, 
of sense contact, of Vedana. Um, we're supported through that in letting go, in not hooking on to things, in not holding on to things so much. Because we kind of understand from the inside that things are changing. Yeah, we understand from the inside that things are changing. And so we cling a little bit less or a lot less to what is pleasant. And we're less fearful and aversive towards that which is unpleasant. And we have the kind of um, interest to be interested in what is neither one or the other. Yeah, and that whole realm of the experience, which usually kind of goes completely below the radar. So this is, you know, this is a lot. Yeah. If we think about our habitual ways of being, these are quite significant changes because so much of, of the suffering in our lives comes through this. Yeah. The trying to get or to hold on to what is pleasant, even though it is changing yeah? and it cannot give us lasting satisfaction. This is the second wisdom view, the dukkha, the dissatisfaction in life does not come from things, yeah? either the things we want or the things that we don't want. It comes from our um, mistaken view that things can give us lasting satisfaction, that having this or not having that, whatever the this is, can give us lasting happiness. And so the more we see impermanence, the more uh, we can let go. Yeah, the more we can open up, open up that clenched fist that's struggling with experience and with life. So that expectation, this will make me happy if I get it, or this will make me happy <laughs> if I get rid of it. Yeah, the more. Um, so with that expectation comes contraction. Yeah, and that's kind of that thing that I'm doing with my hand all the time, and we can learn to feel that. We're contracting. And that's where the dukkha is. Putting that weight on something that cannot offer that lasting satisfaction. Not that we cannot have pleasure from things. Just not lasting. <laughs> yeah, not lasting. You know, good food is great. How great was dinner tonight? That was great, wasn't it? Come on, that was great. <laughs> yeah? It was great. But what if we wanted to, it to last forever? <laughs> Would that still be great? Yeah, it wouldn't, you know. If we just kept eating very quickly... That would become suffering. Or we, if, if we expected to have a meal that great every single night of our lives, yeah, that would lead to suffering. So that's what we're talking about, that kind of contraction, that kind of expectation. Yeah, so we can see that yeah, through, through Vedana practice, through the attention that we're paying um, to, our, to our experience. So again, you know, we keep saying this, but the happiness or the unhappiness is not in the object. Yeah, it's in the relationship too. 
in relationship to. So what happens to our experience when we remember that everything arises and passes? Everything arises and passes. Everything is changing. There's a beautiful, uh, it's actually like a piece of poetry from the suttas, from the texts. Just as many diverse winds, quite appropriate to this place, just as many diverse, different winds blow back and forth across the sky. Winds from the east and winds from the west, winds from the north and winds from the south, dusty winds and dustless winds, sometimes cold and sometimes warm, those that are strong and others mild, winds of many kinds that blow. So, in the very body here, various kinds of feelings of Vedana arise, pleasant ones and painful ones, and those neither painful nor pleasant. Yeah, just like the wind. Yeah? Your voice goes quite soft at times, and I don't catch everything you're saying. Okay, do you want me to repeat that poem? Or just from now on to try and, yeah, I'll try and keep it. Yeah, and just keep, just keep letting me know, okay, if it dips. Yeah. So in the very body here, yeah, just like in the great body of the earth, yeah, things arise and they pass. Yeah, the unpleasant comes and the pleasant comes. The wind from the west and the wind from the east. Yeah. Arising and passing and changing. So this is a reminder to, to take things less personally. Yeah. A reminder that actually nothing exists separately. Yeah. Separately from other things, independent from other things. Everything is in relationship and everything is conditioned. Yeah. This is the third wisdom view. Yeah, referred to as not self. Yeah, the third wisdom view. All things are in relationship and every single thing arises dependent on something else. So this is true of our own experience. Our own experience is dependent on causes and conditions that arise beyond our control, right? We're not in control of all the conditions that come together. Just like those winds. And we can see this in Vedana, yeah? What's the Vedana conditioned by? Yeah, what is it conditioned by? It's conditioned by, it's shaped by um, sense objects, yeah? Sounds, sights, touch, smell. Taste, thoughts, that's a condition for the Vedana to arise. It's shaped by our genetics, how we're predispositioned to certain things. It's shaped by nature, shaped by um, our personal history. And by context. Yeah, and by context. So the Vedana is shaped by all these things 
A cool wind on a cold day. Unpleasant. A cool wind on a hot day. Pleasant. Yeah. So the Vedana is shaped by context, shaped by lots of different conditions. Yeah. Do the Kalesas condition the Vedana, or does Vedana condition <laughs> the Kalesas? What do you think? I'm not sure. Yeah. I'll, I, it's, it's something that we can go into quite a lot. Um, I would, what I would say that's really helpful to remember is that actually everything in that, if we're referring to the chain of dependent origination, actually everything mutually conditions everything else. Yeah, that's the short, short answer. Does that feel like enough for now? Yeah, and feel free to come in and um, check in with one of us one-to-one about that if you want to go into it more. Yeah. So I think what, what Jason was raising, just really helpful to, to remember, we tend, um, because of, of the, the mindset of how we're, we're educated and also, also in the teachings, the way things are presented, we tend to think of cause and effect as one cause, one effect. Yeah? Whereas we're talking multiple causes, multiple conditions, um, and the effect and the cause usually, mutually, affecting each other. Okay, so if that sounds really confusing, just park it for now. <laughs> but um, it, it's kind of helpful to just open up the, the space for that. So the Vedana, conditioned by many things, these were just examples, yeah, of some of the things that condition it. Um, and we can see that also in the way different people will have a different Vedana for the same thing. Or the same person will have um, different Vedanas for the same things in different situations. So these three wisdom views, on the one hand, we can pretty much get them intellectually. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, we can see that things are impermanent. That one's the easiest. Yeah hard to argue with. We can see that um, it would be difficult, if not impossible, to get lasting satisfaction from things that themselves do not last. Yeah. And we can see that um, nothing is worth clinging to because it is conditioned and changing. Yeah, we can see that. We can see the conditioned nature of things. And it's a game we can play with ourselves quite easily. Um, and yet it's not always easy to sustain that awareness. Yeah, we understand it intellectually, but it can be quite tricky to, to sustain it as a way of looking. Yeah. To really kind of bring it into our moment-to-moment interaction with our experience. So, you know, we usually find that our minds, you know, get reactive to things. Yeah. They get caught up in some attachment or some aversion. And it's a valuable insight to see that too. Yeah, valuable insight to see that too. So, you know, we might be doing our walking practice and suddenly the thought will come, oh, I should do my laundry right now. Yeah, ever had that? Incredibly common on retreats in India. 
<laughs> I should do my laundry right now. And suddenly laundry looks like the most fun activity that anyone could engage in ever. Yeah. And if we're not aware, yeah, if we're not aware of, of what is going on, ah, there's contact, yeah, the thought arises, and there's the contact there with the thought, and that thought, for some strange reason, has a pleasant Vedana. We, we believe that what will truly make us happy right now is to do our laundry, yeah, and off we go, finding our hands in the cold water, <laughs> doing our laundry. So we get seduced by that. What can be really interesting to see, and this is a, you know, I gave this example because it's a little bit on the ridiculous side, but really true, I know from my own experience, Um, that what we can see is what we actually um, get attached to or aversive to is not the thing, it's not the doing the laundry, it's the unpleasant or the pleasant Vedana associated with it. That's what we actually like. We like the pleasant feeling. We, like, we don't like the unpleasant feeling. And that's actually what the story is about a lot of the time. Yeah? A lot of the time. It's not about the thing. Yeah. The attachment or the aversion is to the Vedana. It's to that pleasant or the unpleasant So the more um, aware we are, the more sensitive we are to this kind of level of our experience, um, and the more we see the impermanent nature of it, yeah, the complex nature of it, the less kind of um, hooked or entranced we are by it. You know, the less kind of it casts um, the spell that it casts on us is not as strong. Yeah, this pleasant, unpleasant. This wanting, not wanting. And this is a really um, wonderful and deep teaching about the nature of happiness, actually. Yeah, about what makes us happy and what doesn't. So, yesterday Nathan talked about the Buddha dividing thinking into two. You remember that? Yeah, two types of thinking, one of Nathan's favorite suttas. So um, the Buddha also divided Vedana into two types. You'll, you'll be interested to know. And I think Nath said yesterday that um, this, this kind of the two types of thinking um, thread is something that's quite, quite present in the teachings in different ways. So it also comes into the Vedana. And in the Vedana, the Buddha called it Worldly, divided Vedana into worldly Vedana and unworldly Vedana. And I'll explain what he means in a moment. Worldly Vedana and unworldly Vedana. So at this level of Vedana, what we're looking at is at the roots of the Vedana, what it's based on, yeah? What it's rooted in. Yeah, the unpleasant, pleasant, neutral. What is it rooted in? So the worldly Vedana. I have a feeling I'm going too fast. Am I going too fast? Okay, I thought I was a bit hyper. Okay. 
So the worldly Vedana is rooted in a sense of preference and a sense of self. Yeah. It's about what's in it for me. Yeah, the worldly Vedana. And, and without a lot of self-judgment there, that's the realm that we inhabit most of the time. Yeah. So, you know, we enjoy a good meal or we enjoy feeling warm. Yeah. Or we enjoy a hot shower. Yeah, so we enjoy all those lovely, pleasant things. Yeah. And they're all in the realm of um, the worldly Vedanas. Yeah. Because we tend to, uh, to contract around them. Yeah. Tend to contract around them. Or, you know, the other side is there's a bad smell or uh, a painful sensation. And so that would be. Um, a worldly unpleasant Vedana yeah. from, from the contact of our daily lives. <coughs> Unworldly Vedana is not reliant on preference. It's not reliant on getting something for me. Yeah. So it kind of takes us beyond um, both... Our tendency to sensual addictions, yeah, to addictions around sensual pleasure. And it also takes us beyond the messages of our society, which are so strong, yeah, that happiness comes from sense pleasure. Yeah, that's where the happiness is. And so... Just like the two types of thinking, the worldly and unworldly Vedana, the distinction, the discernment is around what leads to suffering yeah, for ourselves and others and what leads uh, to well-being for ourselves and others. Yeah, that's the distinction between the two. And looking at this question, what leads to suffering and what leads to happiness, to well-being. Uh, looking at it through the lens of Vedana it gives us another tool yeah, for discernment. Another tool for discernment. Around um, discerning between sensual pleasures which cannot give us lasting satisfaction because they're conditioned and passing and changing and a deeper kind of happiness one that is both a fuel for our practice and a fruit for our practice. And we all know that kind of happiness. Yeah, we all know that kind of happiness. It's a happiness that is not dependent on things being pleasant or unpleasant. Yeah. But it's actually more uh, in tune with where, that, where it is leading. Yeah, what is it aligned with or rooted in? So a very simple example of this is uh, when we do physical exercise. I think that's, it's a great example of, of unworldly Vedana. Yeah. So, you know, say you're here on retreat and you're doing Qigong or yoga and you're stretching the body beyond the comfort zone, yeah? beyond what feels pleasant. 
Yeah, so it might be in the Qigong you're just holding a position for a while, or in a yoga you're stretching, or any kind of physical activity. You know what I mean? It's actually painful. Yeah? So it's unpleasant, right? And yet, we know it's good for us. Yeah? So there's something in us. This is the unworldly, unpleasant Vedana. Yeah? Because it's beyond that kind of what's good for me right now, you know, about me. It's about something bigger than that. Yeah? It's about something bigger than that. So we feel the stretch, and it's unpleasant and wholesome at the same time. And that's what we're talking about. And so and the same thing happens on the cushion so many times a day. Right? We're stretching in that way. We're stretching in that way. Yeah. And deep down it feels good. Yeah. It feels good. Even if it's unpleasant in the moment. And this is also true of you know so many choices that we make in our lives. Yeah. So many choices that we make. Certainly the whole realm of ethical choices having a compassionate diet. You might find it unpleasant some of the time. (laughs) Yeah? And yet when we really tune in, yeah, how does it feel? You know, choosing a long train journey over a short flight, if we're concerned about the environment. There's another. Yeah? So we know these experiences, they're not foreign to us, yeah? We know this very immediately. So unpleasant, unworldly Vedana is great, yeah? It's good for us, wholesome. And we also know the unworldly pleasant Vedana. You know, we know that in our experience. You know, the easiest one is when we're in nature. Yeah? And we just feel that sense of peace, of being in nature. It's not about us. Yeah? Or moments of enjoying simplicity, yeah, renunciation. Yeah, that's also unworldly pleasant, Vedana. It feels good. Or moments of sharing generosity. Yeah, really simple ways. You know, here, just um, opening a door for someone. Yeah, when we're at this kind of attunement and listening. How good that can, that can feel, just holding a door open or, you know, doing our, our job, our task, acts of generosity. Or any moment when we let go into the breath as we practice when there's restlessness or pain in the body and we just have that moment of letting go into the breath. That too is unworldly pleasant Vedana.
So part of what I, I love about this teaching of the unworldly Vedana is that it's a reminder that joy and happiness, you know, kind of really deep joy, deep happiness, are a crucial part of our path. Yeah. And sometimes with Buddha Dharma, because there's such an emphasis on, on suffering, yeah, and the ending of suffering, it, it, we forget that. Yeah, because there's so much talk about suffering. Yeah, we forget that joy and happiness are really crucial. This is a path of happiness leading to happiness. A path of happiness leading to happiness. And when I was writing that line earlier today in my notes, this memory came of when I was a child, I lived in Bangkok for um, three years and I was only eight years old when we moved there. And, and one of the strongest memories I have, um, it was my first direct contact with Buddhist practitioners. And I remember um, watching the monks on their alms round in the morning. So for those of you who don't know, in the, in the Theravada um, traditions, the monks rely on donations for, for their food. So they walk around with their bowls every morning. Uh, collecting food offerings and I used to love watching that I used to love watching that as a young child both the kind of dignity yeah of of the monks walking slowly with with the bowls and you know as a child I couldn't conceptualize I you know it didn't cross my mind that if they don't if nothing gets put in, put in their bowl they're not eating for 24 hours I didn't even think about that but there was something that resonated with me of just that dignity and that gesture this unworldly vedana that I could feel also in response yeah to seeing that and then equally the lay people yeah waiting outside their houses yeah they would wait outside their houses with food to offer to the monks. And they, their presence, yeah, their joy. Yeah. So that sharing, yeah, the renunciation and the generosity that we can all feel, yeah, we know that in ourselves and in, in others. We can, we can feel it. And it's such a precious frequency to tune into in life. Yeah, so underrated in our society, societies. Yeah, so wonderful. Yeah, nothing in it about getting yeah. or about me. So, you know, our human condition, our human circumstances are complex yeah I think one of the things that we um, experience when we're on retreat like this when we're silent and we contemplate our, our, our inner life um, we see how complex things are yeah how complex things are but this complexity of the human condition opens up a field of possibilities yeah infinite possibility so you know different Vedana arise that's different aspects of humanity that arise. And we can refine the skill of aligning with the helpful rather than the harmful. Yeah. 
aligning with the unworldly rather than the worldly, aligning with um, the interest, the wide interest of all of us rather than self-interest. So the helpful rather than the harmful. And we can do that again and again. Yeah, that's the beauty of the opportunities that we have. We can do that again and again. We miss an opportunity, there's another one. Yeah, they never run out. We can keep aligning. And I wanna I wanna close with a story um, about a friend of mine and the situation she found herself in, which is, for me, a real um, a real inspiration, yeah, to this possibility, yeah, to this field of possibility within the complexity that we can find ourselves in as human beings. And um, so this is a friend of mine, but a friend of mine. None of the people in the story are... Um, Buddhist practitioners, <laughs> just to say, um, my friend, who's the only one I know in the story, is a devout Muslim, and uh, I think definitely her spiritual path is a support for her in the, in this in her life and in this particular situation. So this happened um, a month or so ago, and. Um, my friend was going to visit her friend, her son, in prison. Um, he's in. Um, they're Palestinian, and her son is um, in an Israeli prison. Um, has been there since May. Um, still awaiting the end of his trial. And it was winter, and she had brought some warm clothes for him because when he was arrested in May. It was hot, so winter and cold, and she had brought some warm clothes for him. And the procedure is that um, after the visit ends, that's when the families can go and um, give what they've brought to their children um, to the soldiers, then the soldiers check and decide whether that will go in or not. And so even though all she had brought for her son was warm clothes, this was rejected and the soldiers would not let her, um, would not take that in to her son. And because the prison is in Israel and the families are Palestinian, they uh, cannot travel freely in. So they come on on a bus run by the Red Cross. So she had to wait until other families finished their visits. And as she was waiting, she got talking with the father of another young man who was in the prison. And um, this man, his son had already been in prison for two years. He's about to be released. And so he knew kind of the ways of the things. She described him, you know, said he's a much older man, maybe in his uh, mid to late 70s. And he said to her, why don't I take the clothes and say they're from my son, and maybe they'll get them in then, and then my son can give them to your son. Okay. So of course she agreed, you know. 
And so he went over with a bag of clothes and um, gave them to the soldiers and asked for them to be given to his son. And again, they checked the, the clothes and then they started yelling at this old man um, in Hebrew, which my friend doesn't understand. But this, the, the man who was trying to help her did. So they were yelling and yelling and yelling at him and he was um, standing his ground, yeah, gently and firmly, yeah, just repeating the request. And in the end, they just gave him back the clothes and kind of told him to get lost. And he went back um, to speak to my friend and she was ready to give up, you know. And then he told her, um, that the reason that the soldiers had rejected the clothes for his son, not for her son, for his son, was because they knew his son. And his son is a very, very big, <laughs> very, very big guy. <laughs> and the clothes were obviously for the size of an average guy. <laughs> so they got angry. But he said to her, you know, he said to her, let's wait. You know, anyway, we have to wait. Let's wait a little bit longer. Let's wait a little bit longer. So the shifts of the soldiers changed. That's what he was waiting for. The shifts changed. And then again, he went over to the soldier on duty. And he gave the bag of clothes. And he asked for them to be given to his son. And this time the soldiers just checked that there was nothing in there but clothes. And then took them in. Yeah. And you might wonder, what, what has this got to do with anything we've been doing here or talking about? Yeah, what has this got to do with anything we've been doing here or talking about? If we imagine ourselves in this kind of situation, we can imagine the types of Vedana that would arise, right? There'd be a lot of the unpleasant, yeah? There'd be a lot of the unpleasant. And that unpleasant could easily lock us into anger, despair, frustration, justified, yeah? Really, like, not... I'm not saying those are not justified human responses at all, yeah? But do you see the limitation in that? If we get locked into those feelings, which they were feeling, for sure, yeah? But both of them in this story could stay tuned in to something deeper than that level of experience. Yeah. Or we could say they could stay tuned in to the unworldly Vedana of that love for their children. Yeah. And the love in the case of this man, the love for somebody else's child, yeah, which he doesn't even know. It's not easy for a Palestinian man to face Israeli soldiers and know that his son is, you know, they are in control of his son's conditions. It's not an easy choice to make. Yeah. And to do it in a way that does not add 
Yeah, does not add any more animosity. Yeah, does not add any more anger. For me, that's a real teaching. A real teaching. So aligning with the helpful, yeah, rather than the anger, rather than the pain, rather than the despair. Not getting hooked into that. Yeah. And the most, one of the most profound things for me about this story was that when my friend Kausar told this story to a mutual friend, she then told it to me, she was laughing. And she said, being in that situation, watching the whole process, what I felt most connected to is the absurdity of our human condition. <laughs> the absurdity of our human condition. Putting each other in prison. <laughs> yeah. Denying children warm clothes. Pretending that these clothes are for your son when he, they're about, you know, <laughs> ten, 10 sizes too small. You know, the absurdity of the human condition. A genuine, kind of genuine insight and humor and laughter. And when that is there, something else is there resilience. Resilience. Yeah. I, c- I cannot think of many situations worse than her situation. Yeah. And yet, aligning with the bigger picture, being able to see the human condition, makes us more resilient, resilient towards trauma. And more able to respond, yeah, wisely. And compassionately. So let's have a a quiet minute to bring this to a close. So may we all remember the 
complexity of our human condition and the infinite possibilities that are available to us to align in each moment with what is helpful and wholesome. And to let go of that which leads to harm and to suffering. So may our practice be a light and a fire that supports the good and the wholesome in this world. that supports the well-being of all beings everywhere, including ourselves. So thank you for your listening and for your presence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.